Ballyhoo. Now that we were in Ballyhoodorm, we were left pretty much to our own devices. Prefects and matron rarely came to the various dorms and outhouses all over the grounds of which Ballyhoo was one. These dorms were only inhabited by students who could be trusted not to creep out at night to meet boys or to smoke in the bushes. There were, however, two of these dorms that were right next door to the folly Miss Marsh and Mr Alexander's house, and they were under strict surveillance and were always full of the famously naughty girls. Our classroom was right next door to Ballyhoo, and we used to rush back at break time and make ourselves cups of coffee using the hot water geezer, which felt like the height of sophistication. You entered Ballyhoo through its own front door and into a tiny hallway with a door to each side. To the right was a dorm where Annabelle, Zara, Sarah, Cassie and I slept, and to the left was a dorm where four borderline naughty girls slept. They had been put there in the hope that us lot of goody-two-shoes might rub off on them. It wasn't that we intended to be so well behaved, but being the trailblazers both vocationally and academically, we were just too tired to be bad. We loved having the so-called naughty girls with us, and we all got along swimmingly. We used to swap beds and rooms from time to time in Ballyhoo just for a change and the four of us goodies decided to swap with the four naughties. Our dorm was bigger and had two windows. The one we were moving into was much smaller and had only one tiny window which only opened at the top. To let air in, this little window was nearly always left open. Both dorms in Ballyhoo housed rats in the loft as we used to hide food in the rafters and were inadvertently providing the rats with a nightly buffet. We used to listen to them scurrying around every evening without worrying at all. One night, we were woken by a different sound, a scuffling that was coming from the tiny window. The naughties had boyfriends in town. These boys, having heard that their girlfriends were residing in Ballyhoo, decided to let themselves in through the open window. They hadn't realised just how small that window was and the first boy was completely stuck in the window with his head and shoulders in our dorm and his hips and legs hanging outside the window. We woke and were surprisingly unfazed by the sight of a boy dangling from the window. We calmly went next door to let the others know they had visitors. The friends of the boy stuck in the window had run away so it was left to us girls to get him free. We tried pushing him out first of all, but he was tightly wedged in the tiny window. The giggling became intense and we turned to pulling rather than pushing him and so delivered him into our dorm with his trousers now round his ankles and his pants not far behind them. Once he was fully in, he scrambled to put his trousers on and ran for the door without saying a word. The poor boy was traumatised. We all moved back to our original beds the next day so that the right girls would receive their visitors, but they never came back again whilst we were in that dorm. Anorexia. Food was always a major preoccupation. Being so active, we were always ravenous. The school was fed by Bill and his wife Mabel, 
Bill was a small gnome of a man with several round mounds on his big bulbous nose. I'm calling them mounds because they didn't appear to be spots or warts, more just extensions to his mammoth nose. Not at all repulsive. These mounds just made him look funny and even more gnome-like. He wore glasses on the end of said nose, which he peered over the top of. This made us wonder why he wore them at all, as he never seemed to be actually looking through these glasses. His hair was a sparse, greasy comb-over, and he always wore a food-splattered white-ish apron. He tried to appear grumpy and standoffish, but if you appreciated his food, he liked you. Simple as that, and would even joke with you occasionally. Mabel was neat and grey. Short, grey, perfectly permed hair, grey, sallow skin. A button up the front apron, occasionally in a breakout pattern, as if she was daring us to see that she was more than just grey. She hardly ever said a word. She was Bill's army. Between the two of them, they cooked for at least 200 hungry girls three meals a day, seven days a week. Some of those meals were sketchy, but there was always something. I can't remember them ever not being there. Of course they had the school holidays to themselves, but in term time, the food was totally down to them. Bill and Mabel cooked old-fashioned, often stodgy food. One of my personal favourites was mashed potatoes with melted cheese on top and lashings of baked beans followed by the biggest bowl imaginable of apple crumble literally swimming in hot, hot custard. This was always Saturday lunch. We used to walk into town afterwards almost holding our tummies up. Most of Bill's food was made in huge industrial metal baking trays. Everything was finished off in the oven, resulting in a delicious crispiness on the top of every meal. We could go up for seconds and sometimes thirds. We were always hungry, but obviously not through lack of food. It was simply because we were growing and working so hard. But some of us didn't want to grow anymore. Ballet dancers, of course, want to be as slim as possible. Being slim makes everything easier. Movement being lifted by boys in pas de deux, line, aesthetics. We all started to watch what we ate, and it was while we were in Ballyhoo that I remember first not being able to sleep from hunger. There was a kind of heroic thrill about dieting and the feeling of hunger that accompanied it. We were suffering for our art. Bill must have thought we had gone mad, and it was at about this time that the school brought in a new cook, so he would have felt very sad about all the changes. He was not sacked, rather pushed to one side. First a new kitchen and then a new cook. A nice lady who went on about healthy food. I don't think it was healthier and it certainly wasn't as delicious as Bill's food. A lot of it came pre-prepared, which riled Bill. There was less of it too, but Bill always topped it up for us with fresh white bread and butter. We would often fall off the starvation wagon and bulk eat anything available. But Annabelle was made of more determined stuff and stuck with it. Little by little, she shrank and so did her spirit. My best friend seemed to be disappearing before my very eyes and it was a curious feeling. I somehow felt angry, like she was forsaking 
not just me, but all of us. I know anorexia is a horrible illness and should be treated sympathetically and professionally. We didn't know much about the condition then. It was all quite glamorous to us, but then it started to become apparent that Annabelle was making herself ill. She was sent home to be fattened up by her mum's delicious cooking. It felt like abandonment, as if her dreams were bigger and more important than ours. By literally starving herself, she was somehow more deserving to succeed than us. I hated that anorexia had stole her away from me, and even though it was now out of her control, I blamed her, if I'm honest, for ruining all of our relationships with food. I honestly don't think the school could be blamed. It was before the days when dancers and athletes were advised on diet. There was even a stupid diet around at that time where you weren't supposed to drink water at all. I read an article about Beryl Gray using this method of dieting in her heyday. Imagine the dehydration. We used to come out of classes dripping with sweat and we would throw our heads underneath the nearest tap and swig as much water as our stomachs could hold. Annabelle came back to school after a couple of weeks. She didn't appear to have put on any weight at all. She was more serious than she used to be, as if a spark had gone out in her. We remain lifelong friends, but we will never forget the time of anorexia. (laughs) 